welcome to the Practical Family Podcast. I'm Jennifer Bryant, and I want to invite you to watch and or listen to this very special edition of the Practical Family Podcast with our special guest, Dr. Lucretia Berry. I've invited Dr. Berry onto the show today to talk with us as parents about how to address the issue of race with our children. Now, there are many facets of this conversation, and while it is an ongoing conversation, I also recognize that many of us as parents are coming from various backgrounds. Some of us have been exposed to race education, some may be slightly less so. Some have received a form of education in which race and the historical accounts of slavery were a part of our education and still some even less so. No matter where you're coming from in this conversation, I want to invite you to listen to some very real talk and some very basic information that Dr. Barry wants to help us to understand about where to start in addressing the issue of race with our children. Now, our goal here is not to incite debate, it's to sit down and have a dialogue. And Dr. Barry talks about that in our episode today. This is part one of a two-part series, and we will address the beginning ideas of debate, discussion, and dialogue, and their purposes and uses in the process of this conversation as a whole and out there in society. Now, I recognize that there are many things happening, probably in your face, on social media, maybe in conversations with friends that might be confusing you right now. As a parent, you might be asking yourself, well, where in the world do I start? And I wanted to help us today to have a place to start because I myself am re-educating my understanding of how to address this with my kids. So I wanted to pull in experts in the field as well as women of color who can bring their experiences and their voice to this very real and very relevant conversation. Before we get started, let me share a few things about our guest today. Dr. Lucretia Berry has her PhD in education, more specifically in curriculum and instruction. Lucretia is an educator by both training and personality, and her curriculum called What Lies Between Us, Fostering First Steps Toward Racial Healing, is a great place for adults to begin their education or re-education on the issue of race. We'll talk about her steps and personal motivations in communicating these very important things to a world that is thirsty for answers. Her website can be found at brownicity.com and we'll reference that website often in these interviews. So get ready to watch interview part one, how to talk with our kids about race. Lucretia Berry, welcome to the Practical Family Podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Hi, Jen, and thank you for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be able to connect with you because one of the first times I heard about your website, the ministry, was through the Grit and Grace podcast with Amy Carroll and Sherry Gregory. Right. Yes, we uh, connected probably before her podcast, but she... uh, they wanted to talk about the impact 
uh, and what they were experiencing um, through my the study guide, uh, What Lies Between Us. And so there were some things that stood out to them from there and they wanted to have me on to talk about it. And I just felt so honored. Like as a teacher, when people are learning from you know your content, or at least me as a teacher, you know, people are learning from my content. I, I feel honored. And so I was happy to go on the podcast and teach some more. <laughs> and I tell you, it was life-changing for me because as a teacher myself or a trained teacher, I am naturally going to gravitate toward information that I can soak in, that information that's new to me. Like, and a lot of this topic, I feel like, gosh, I should have known this, right? Right? <laughs> you know, And all of us were educated so differently it seems like and that's kind of the hurdle that we're having to overcome at this point but um your study guide which we'll talk about more i've i'm taking myself through it right now i'm almost done i'm almost at the end it's taken me through a lot of different cycles of of introspection and i love that history was at the very beginning of it and um i i needed it being able to have this conversation with you is such a blessing. I love the idea behind your website, Brownicity. Right. Tell me about what that means um, and how, how that kind of works out with your own family. Sure. Brownicity is a made-up word, and it's two words put together, brown and ethnicity. And it really stemmed from our family needing a framework of oneness. So I am African American. My husband is white American, which you know is inclusive of Italian, mostly some German in there as well. But oftentimes, you know, we even in society we describe a couple like my husband and I as interracial, and so then it kind of limits us to these socially kind of constructed uh, narratives about who we are and what we where we've come from. And well, it doesn't really bode well. You know, when you need to describe, when you need a, a, a family framework that holds you together as one and, and doesn't kind of treat you as these fragmented pieces from two different racial categories, um, or you're some mixture of these two things that are not supposed to be mixed together. Our children have a mom and a dad, like all humans, right? Before we even had children, we did search for or, or talk about what our framework would be for our multi-ethnic children who would need tools to navigate our very hyper-racialized society, you know, a society that would try to put them, you know, in one category or the other, um, or, you know, they get the question, you know, what are you, you know, as if they weren't human, you know. But anyway, our oldest, when she was only four years old, made the observation um, that we're all hues of brown. And she had done a portrait activity at school and you know that was her takeaway and she said mommy you are deep brown and daddy is light brown and i'm medium brown and uh, we thought that was a wonderful framework because it's true like all humans are hues of brown but melanin is brown and we all have melanin and you know her daddy uh, who is of european descent has less melanin because of where his ancestors came from and they needed less melanin because you know, Europe is further away from the equator. And then my ancestors had more melanin because my ancestors, where they came from, was closer to the equator. And children can understand that. Like it's, oh, that makes sense to them. Far more sense than like a racial category because of course children see color. And so it makes no sense when you're that little to call like mommy black 
and daddy white. Although those are our racial categories, they don't describe our skin tone. So when she was four, she would describe people to a T. Like this, she would say, this girl in my class is brown like me, but has straight black hair like daddy. Perhaps her ancestors were from India. Like that's how she would describe people. So there will be a whole story there instead of just some type of category. So we would use the term, well, it's, you know, so-and-so brown like, brown like me, or brown like daddy, or brown like mommy. So brown became a core unifier of our, you know, our conversation or our framework. So that's where the brown comes from. And then ethnicity means that which we have in common. And so, yes, we all are hues of brown. And so that's why our tagline for brownicity is, many hues, one humanity. And it gives us, you know, the space to have a more nuanced conversation um, beyond kind of the traditional dichotomous or polarizing or bipolar, I should say, framework of talking from, you know, you know, white people have to talk about it this way or black people have to talk about it that way. But if you're in a multi-ethnic family, whether that is your immediate family or extended family, you need space. You need the space to expand the story and allow more words for describing your, you know, your ethnicity, your culture, your background. And then, yeah, I guess your race of racial category when you need to check a box. <laughs> right. And then there is the paperwork that only has. <laughs> yeah. And that's important because, you know, unfortunately we, we still have to like check a box because it's important for, uh, I'll say, statisticians, you know, sociologists, people like to measure disproportionality and inequality. Like we have to be able to measure those things. So uh, maybe one day we won't have to check a box, but right now we still have to check a box. (laughs) I love how you use the term multi-ethnic when it comes to the folks in your household, you know, your children and how we've come out different shades of brown. I'm actually half Mexican. But no one would maybe assume that, you know, it's always been assumed, well, you're, you're white, you're Caucasian, and I sound like it. So, you know, it, I'm like, would it help if I learned Spanish? Maybe with that? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, all the things that kind of tend to go through my head as to how much of this am I allowed to claim or something, especially in our our hyper-racialized society. And some of those things that we can work ourselves into or out of, I mean, my husband is Hawaiian, Chinese, Korean, and half Caucasian. My, my, so then my kids are all of those things, but my son, can I just show you really quick? This is funny. My son came out super blonde and blue eyed and my brother is more mixed. Yeah. It's just genetics are amazing. Genetics are. Yeah. Our first daughter came out so light you know, that her grandparents joked, like, what happened? <laughs> like, because she, she just looked like my husband had her all by himself. Like, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> oh, you know. Had, you know, a little more brown, but she was, yeah, it's very fair skin. Oh, and- <laughs> it's funny. It's just funny. And, you know, we, you know, God made us all kinds of different ways. Um, so your background then, because it's in curriculum and instruction, as a trained educator myself, I want to be able to teach my kids and now with the platform of Practical Family to help teach other parents how to have this conversation in a better way. Now, in 
your curriculum and in other places, I noticed that you talk about the difference between debate, discussion, and dialogue. <laughs> and we see a whole lot of debating right now on social media, but help, help me to understand the differences there when it comes to talking about race and why particularly the colorblind approach doesn't work. Okay, so yeah, that all goes together under the category of why it's difficult to have conversations, how we don't have dialogue, and then instead we have debate and discussion. And so really the colorblind approach, I mean, it sounds good in theory, like, oh, we, we see everyone as equal um, and the same, but that's not the reality that we live in. And the colorblind approach, or playing the colorblind card, <laughs> essentially shuts down any healthy uh, dialogue and conversation, even just learning. Um, it, it shuts that down. And so I get it. Like people want to say it as a way of saying, I'm not racist. Um, and okay. Um, <laughs> but we still have problems. Um, and so saying that I'm not racist doesn't help dismantle and deconstruct and heal. The colorblind approach or pretending, you know, to not see color has actually robbed us of a framework and healthy language and permission to engage in you know, our, our healing process or you know, how can we create something better if we can't even address the issue. And so I liken it to, um, to cancer. Uh, when my mom had breast cancer, I didn't say, well, I'm gonna pretend like I don't, you know, that she doesn't have it or that it's not an issue. And then that is what will make it better. No, I, I remember being really big and pregnant and I'd go to every appointment with her that I could. Um, you know, sometimes I'd have to say, you know, with me being pregnant, can I go into certain, you know, appointments because of the equipment that was there, uh, radiation, certain things like that. But I had, she had her own folder and I'm like taking all these notes and I'm learning as much as I can. She's learning as much as she can to do what we can do to um, beat the cancer. And, um, and she did, like she beat the cancer. But the point is, you know, pretending that it wasn't there was not the answer. And it's the same with race and how we've been racialized. And, you know, we're working kind of from a deficit. And, and so we don't understand race and we don't understand how we've been racialized. Um, I liken that to gravity. And because gravity is something that we can all, you know, say, well, I think I know what that is, you know, or maybe it has impacted us, all of us in some way. But how many people can actually explain the, the mechanics and the mechanism, the science behind gravity? Now, usually when I'm doing these, you know, when I'm teaching live, there's usually maybe one, like, scientist person in the audience who can explain it like a, you know, you need a physicist or an astrophysicist or something. But um, most people can't explain it. And this is very similar to race. Like people don't understand that it was policies and practices and laws that actually made race. And then when people begin to understand those things, then they grow this capacity to engage in healthy dialogue. So until they get to a place where they can have healthy dialogue, they only are able to engage in debates and discussions. I borrowed this from, okay, the writing on my paper is too small, but anyway, it's in the, it's a part of the, uh, curriculum. Um, but I borrowed this from um, a university and it told the difference between debate, discussion, and dialogue. And of course, with debate, debate is more might is right. And so it's not about moving forward in a healthy way. It's about winning. Okay. And so, I mean, there is no winning. Like everybody loses. <laughs> everybody is losing in regards to how, how we aren't, we don't have the proficiency um, that we should in terms of understanding 
racism and then discussion is i know people go like oh let's come together and let's have a discussion but usually discussion means um the noisier the smarter so the person who talks the most you know like is uh, maybe wins or takes up the most space or has the most airtime or on social media you know maybe it's whoever writes the longest post or you know comes back time after time after time and so the discussion really doesn't move us forward anyway. What actually moves us forward is dialogue. And dialogue is goal-oriented. It's connectivity for community. So if our goal is to move forward as a community, then we need to be equipped and given the capacity for dialogue. And yeah, that's why uh, my uh, curriculum or you know that particular one, that, that's why it's laid out that way. Um, and regardless of where I teach, um, whether I'm teaching like a five-week course or um, like in the high school, I teach a year-long course. Um, I use this same approach is that we have to build ourselves. We have to fill in our deficits first before we can then move forward in healthy dialogue. I love that. And part of filling in our deficit is the educational part. And I'm glad that you brought that out first in this workbook, What Lies Between Us, and effort to bring us toward racial healing. But I love that you are recognizing that the steps toward a, an actually healthy dialogue is a common understanding. And that is so important because I remember being a classroom teacher and I could have been teaching the kids about, um, I think I did a, a series once on Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching them about the Raven and <laughs> Telltale Heart and all this. But these Hawaii kids had no concept of life, of British English life. And okay. I realized, wow, I'm teaching them about culture that's coming from, you know, a British poet. I've learned a lot about even just being a teacher in this mix of culture in Hawaii. And it's, and it's pushed me more toward, wait, I need to learn more about the, these guys, these, these girls and boys and what they're coming from because I mean I'm just I'm just me I was educated the way I was but I can't come over here assuming that I have a lot to teach you and you don't have anything to teach me you know so I started I started that journey back then and I feel like I'm still on it now that I'm educating my own kids because it's like okay we got to come from this from a right sense of history and and a whole sense of history and not just what we know and what we understand so as homeschool mothers, and this, this is uh, the majority of folks that follow the Practical Family Podcast, we, we talk a lot about homeschooling. We often joke amongst our own community that homeschooling is, uh, is a re-education of ourselves, and we're sort of redeeming our own education by teaching our kids again, because we're always going to fill in maybe gaps that we didn't get and everything. And it's important now that as our community specifically is coming in to study U.S. history in this next school year, I, I think it's no coincidence that all of this, this, this uh, dialogue and discussion <laughs> and debate is coming up in our society. So what are some areas in terms of history that we need to educate ourselves in in order to give our kids a better rounded view? Well, you know, just in general, so this is very general and a broad sweep, but our institutions of education, so we can just lump them into, you know, schools, general school curriculum and churches, right? That's kind of where we 
get the most of our education that informs who we are, a national identity consciousness. Well, we suffer from a severe deficit where we're you know, only telling the history of European conquests, colonization, and contributions. I remember being a kid in elementary school thinking, you know, why are we learning about the same four white guys like every year? I'm sure there's other people who did things in the United States, women, you know, um, you know at, back then, I think my, my world was just black and white. So I was probably thinking African-Americans like, or no, because that wasn't a term back then. Black people <laughs> like that. Um, I, you know, because as a child, you know, I, you know, I just said, I love learning. And so I was pretty bored, like le learning about the same few people over and over again. And I did actually have a teacher say, Black people have not contributed much to the United States. Now, I knew that that wasn't right. And so I thought, well, here's a teacher that has been, you know, misinformed. And I was very fortunate, though, to, you know, go home to parents who actively amended what I was taught in school. And I can't tell you that they sat down and said and had a plan like, okay, you know, we're going to actively amend what they learned in school. But it was just a part of their narrative that I wasn't being taught in school. So a little context, you know, and a little reality check is, okay, I'm not that old, but I'm the first generation of fully integrated to school. So my parents would have grown up, well, they grew up during the Jim Crow era, you know, so they had a different education than I did. And then of course had lots to share <laughs> um, that wasn't being taught in school. So I'd come home and I could say, well, you know, um, I learned, uh, you know, I, we learned about merit meritocracy today. And I learned that if you work really, really hard, you can have whatever you want. You get all the spoils or whatever. And my mom said, well, that's not true because our enslaved ancestors or, you know, slaves, she said they worked really hard but they weren't able to have or, or see the spoils of their work. And, you know, for me right there, that amended what I was taught in school and it added like, oh, there's, there's more to the story. I love that homeschool families are in this beautiful position that, okay, you don't have to have one thing happen at school and you come home and amend it. You can give a fuller account immediately. And there are all kinds of resources for that where all people, um, non-European people in the United States have not been excluded from our national story. And without getting into teaching a whole thing here, like that was on purpose. Like people were written out of textbooks on purpose. People's color was kind of whitewashed out of the Bible on purpose. It's all documented. We don't have to, again, don't have to debate it or discuss it. <laughs> we can, Because it used to be so acceptable this belief that um, people of color were inferior there was no shame around creating policies and enacting practices that solidified that so all of this is you know written down in places right so because it was so intentionally done like well let's take all of these people out of the textbooks or let's whitewash you know our history um, then we have to be that much more intentional in being inclusive. And so there's all kind of books for that. One that jumps out at me right now is Lies My Teacher Told Me. So I hate to put the onus on teachers, 
<laughs> That's the one thing I don't like about that title. <laughs> but it should be like lies of the institution of education. <laughs> totally. Because <laughs> I love teachers. But also as teachers, like I'm a teacher. And so I do have the autonomy to shape my the content that I am I'm teaching. So yes, and I do agree homeschoolers have more of the freedom to be able to do that. And it's it's difficult to see if if mothers don't feel like they can get past the loudness of the debate on social media enough to know that what we can educate ourselves and then we can sit and have a dialogue with someone about it and really press into the things that we don't know or the things that we missed in our education or or that just were flat out not there. And I think that a lot of mothers are worried that because they don't know what they don't know, what are they going to inadvertently pass on to their children in terms of implicit bias or anything like that. So so I love that even your curriculum here and what lies between us has given us a foundational framework for, okay, let's look at this first. Let's consider what's in here, what may be in here, you know, way or not, and work it out from there. We have to we have to challenge ourselves as adults before we can, you know, pass it on and always in grace and love, which, you know, is yeah. part of it. I mean, we, we were created to evolve. So we're always growing and evolving. And so we can just make that a part of our growth. You know, um, sometimes I think we com compartmentalize it like, well, it's this thing over here that I have to, that is hard and difficult and, um, and, you know, uh, taboo, but no, it's like anything, anything that, um, you know, just you take some steps, you take your first steps, you learn a little bit, and then you keep learning and you keep learning and you keep growing. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Grace, grace everywhere. So what is difficult right now for many non-people of color, um, especially in the Christian community, and because I work with a lot of homeschool moms who are also Christian, you know, raised, raised in the Christian faith, and and uh, biblically-based education is what is very important to them, too. It's difficult to be thought of or think that they're being thought of as being unintentionally racist. And then here comes, you know, arguments like the colorblind approach. And as you said before, you know, I, I need to, I feel like in defense, I need to throw out all these reasons why I'm not racist and just kind of leave it there. But when we're questioning our underlying racial tendencies or being accused of being racist, how can we maybe understand the difference between systemic and personal racism and maybe turn that defensiveness into a more of a proactive approach to, to combat these harmful ideologies? Right. Well, I will say first, again, it's like we've been handed a plate of manure, right? Here's <laughs> this plate of manure. Now grow a beautiful garden. Fortunately, manure can help you grow a beautiful garden. <laughs> so there's that. But one thing that is misunderstood, someone being called a racist is, is not very helpful because we think of it as stagnant. Like the Klan member is racist. You know, the KKK, Klan, the white supremacist is racist. Yes, that's a done deal. <laughs> However, <laughs> all of us have been racialized and you know my husband again who is white he will say you know when we're teaching together he he will say to um, white people he says look I am married to this african-american woman we have three you know beautiful brown children and he says 
But because, you know, we've grown up in this society where we have been racialized and we've received all these messages, we do have, you know, he says, I do still have biases. And it doesn't mean that he's like um, going around like spewing um, vitriol or anything like that or being outwardly discriminatory. It just means that he is very intentional about being aware of some kind of thought that has come by his, how we're shaped without even really knowing it. So he's, you know, he'll say, I, you know, I'm on the journey every day and I still have to check my thoughts sometimes or check, you know, my mindset. So we have to separate this whole racist thing from moral because we, we think racist is like, I mean, and rightly so, like, you're horrible and you need to be thrown in jail. <laughs> and it's a felony. I think I heard um, Van Jones say to black people, the word racist is like a misdemeanor. You ran a stop sign, you know, <laughs> slap on the wrist. Huh. Uh-huh. Do that again. But for white people, the word racist is like a felony where you get you know, the death penalty. And <laughs> that's not the case. So we have to be able to use the word racist correctly, but also understand that we as people are not stagnant and fixed unless we choose to be. Mm. We always, you know, we have the capability to change and grow. And so like someone like my husband, for example, I love this, like he is always intentionally walking in anti-racism. So even with his company, like whenever he can, he's, you know, checking, you know, the gatekeepers and hiring practices and, you know, looking for gaps and holes, not that they are intentionally there, but because of how um, systems have been in place historically, there's all kinds of opportunity gaps and holes um, due to race. Well, he's a person who's always looking for those to be able to fill them or correct them But at the same time, you know, just the other day, he was like, oh, I had this thought, like, because we intentionally try to um, shop and support businesses, people of color. And so this particular person of color hadn't called him back or something. And he goes, I was thinking, he said, I just had to catch my thought because I was thinking, how dare this person not call me back? I'm doing you a favor. He goes, but when I call a white company and they don't call me back right away, I don't have that thought. So you see, it isn't about, <laughs> so he identified like, well, that was a racist thought, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't, you see, it's the thought or it's the thing or it's the system. It's not the person, you know, we have just been impacted. And um, like my high school students, you know, they go, well, how did it just get baked in us like that? You know? <laughs> well, we've been, you know, breathing in the air and drinking the water. And so there's just things that, you know, we have to, that's why it's important to be aware of your biases so that you can put things in place to uh, safeguard other people against them and yourself. But it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person, especially if you're working on it. You know, it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person and you're convicted to racist jail for life. So number one, if people could just get beyond that, like it's not a stagnant fixed thing. You know, sometimes you, you might do something that's racist. Call, you know, call it out. Maybe don't call that out loud if you don't want to, but at least call it out in your mind and note it so you can check it out. You know, like, you know, that's why in the, in the workbook or in the study guide, those questions are designed to help you access parts that you may be afraid to access 
um, because you're, you know, you're afraid what you might see there. But you know, it's your journal, so nobody's gonna look in there. So you can <laughs> work that out. And then, yeah, like you said, turn defensiveness into a proactive approach to combat harmful ideologies. That whole introspective part of the book was inspired by Dr. Caroline Lee, who switched off my brain. I had done this for some other like toxic thoughts I, I couldn't shake, some unforgiveness, just some things that I was having problems with. And, you know, I walked through this process of seeing my thinking, you know, in order to then address what I was seeing in my thinking. And it was, you know, it was powerful. So in that, that's how I took it and um, turned it into combating this harmful ideas and thoughts. And so we have the power to do that. You have to be afraid to do it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We do have the power to do it. This has been part one of a two-part series here on the Practical Family Podcast, how to talk with your kids about race. My guest today has been Dr. Lucretia Carter-Berry, and you can find more about what she's done at thebrownicity.com. Also, if you've been following the Practical Family Podcast for any length of time, I want to encourage you to go ahead and rate us on iTunes. If you're watching this video on YouTube, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click the subscribe button where you see it, and that will send you more notifications about when new episodes come up and more fun facts about what we're doing. Go to practicalfamily.org and scroll down to the box that says stay connected. Fill that out and you'll be added to our list to be able to receive new updates on what's coming up with practicalfamily.org and our related programs. Thank you so much for watching. This has been Jennifer Bryant with Practical Family, where we are helping to strengthen moms for real life struggles to help you to discover your gifts and embrace grace. Thank you.